All right. Praise him. Take your Bible, turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at verse 6 through verse 20. Habakkuk, Old Testament prophet. We're working our way through this uh, short uh, prophecy and finding how amazingly relevant it is to so many of the questions that uh, stretch us these days. Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 6, in honor of God's word, I want to invite you to stand to your feet with me as we read this text together. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those awake will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, who sets a nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts, the people's labor, merely for fire the nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, the cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol? When its maker is shaped, a metal image, a teacher of lies. For does a maker trust its own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can these teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and it has no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple, and let all the earth keep silence before him let's pray father we thank you for your word we thank you lord for uh, this this ancient prophet who who speaks in ways that, that in many ways seem foreign to us at first and then we dig in and discover that uh, they are as, as real and as relevant as the evening news. And so I pray, Father, that you would uh, fill me with your spirit that I might convey clearly uh, the truths that are found here in your word. And I pray, Father, that you would give your people 
ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to all of us today. Father, may we heed your word. May we take it seriously as the truth, the unbendable, the unchangeable truth that it is. And may we surrender to it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start this morning with a pop quiz. So I hope you're alert and awake. Uh, this pop quiz has just one question. I remember in seminary, you know, the worst uh, words that you ever heard a professor speak. Take out a pen and a paper for a quiz. And so there was like reading you were supposed to do, and I was about to discover whether or not you read it. Well, uh, this morning we're going to start off pretty much the same way with pop quiz. This one has one question. And the question is this, who is the first person in the Bible that God gets angry at? Who is the first person in the Bible that God gets angry at? Well, many of us would answer A, as in Adam, or maybe you combine Eve in there. Depends on, you know, which gender you're coming from, I guess. Adam and Eve, you might assume, would be the first people that God was angry at because they were the first people who disobeyed God. And their particular disobedience was tragic for all of us because it created the, the fall of, of all creation, all of humanity and creation itself because of their disobedience. And that would be a worthy guess. However, while God questions them and, and pronounces curses upon them that would affect all of their offspring, meaning the entire human race, uh, we're never told anywhere in the passage that God did that out of anger. He says it nowhere. Maybe you could say that he was heartbroken, if anything. But anger is not mentioned. So maybe it's B. Uh, the people, mankind in the world just prior to the flood. That would make sense, right? That God would pronounce uh, judgment on all the world... Uh, right before the flood, that he was going to flood the world. But the Bible, again, says nowhere that God did that out of his anger. In fact, what it says is, is that he was sorrowful. That he, he, he regretted that he even made mankind. But it doesn't say anything in the passage about him being angry. No, the, the winner... And the right answer to the question, to the first time that we see God getting angry at anybody, was Moses. Moses. Moses is called out by God to be his ambassador for Israel, before Pharaoh, his representative. And Moses, there at the burning bush, begins to give God a litany of excuses of why he can't or perhaps that he won't 
obey God. And so we see this happening over and over. Who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God says to him, I will be with you. I will be with you. Wait, wait. What if they ask me your name? Who am I going to tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am has sent you. Okay, okay, but, but what if they don't believe me? What if they don't listen to me? And God says, take the staff in your hand and throw it on the ground, and it becomes a serpent. Then he says, take your hand and put it in your robe. Now pull it out, and he pulls it out, and it's leprous. And he says, now put it back in, and he pulls it out again, and it's healed. This is God's way of saying, do you see the power that I have? Do you see the miracles that I'm able to perform? Is there anything that I can't do? I am with you. I am has sent you. I am is all powerful. What does Moses do? Listen, man, that's awesome and all, but I think you have the wrong guy because I'm not even... I'm not even eloquent of speech, right? I have a speech impediment. And God says, I just just show you what I'm capable of doing. I think I can handle your speech impediment. I I will help you to speak. And so every excuse that Moses has given, God has a comeback for. Nonetheless, Even after all of that, Moses finally says, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so, man. Can can you just please send somebody else? Five times Moses has made excuses of why he will not obey God. And so finally, God's had enough. And he gets angry. He gets angry. The word anger in the Old Testament in the Hebrew text means uh, flaring nostrils. Very picturesque, isn't it? The Bible, in fact, says that God is slow to anger. Uh, anger. He's slow in his anger. And that's played out here because it took Moses five layers of unbelief and denial before God's nostrils begin to flare. God is slow to anger. But just because he's slow to anger does not mean that he doesn't get angry. And so Moses has pushed God's button one too many times. Exodus 4, 14 and 16 says this, Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And this is the first time we find in the scripture the anger of the Lord. But what does he do with that anger? What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you. He will be glad to see you. You will speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. And he will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if uh, you were God to him. We will just kind of play it out that way. But, But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. Isn't that amazing? So even though God's anger burns against Moses, 
in his anger, he doesn't respond in anger. In fact, he provides a solution. He provides a substitute, if you will, a stand-in for Moses, someone to take his place. God's anger is then kindled by a substitute. There are two other times in the book of Exodus where God gets angry, and both of them are significant. The second time was when Pharaoh and the Egyptians continued to pursue God's people into the Red Sea. So the second time we read of God being angry, he is, he is angry at the enemies of his people. And so you know the story that the Egyptians chased the Israelites down into the Red Sea, and then, uh, well, God basically removes his hand, and the natural order of things take place, and they are drowned in the Red Sea, the Egyptians are. In Exodus 15, therefore, we hear Moses after this incident, and, and he writes a song. And here's part of the song, Exodus 15, 7 through 8. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who oppressed you. You unleashed your burning anger. There it is again. It's always burning. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. Their surging water stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. So once again, we see that God is angry. And God's anger here results in his judgment against the Egyptians, which resulted in God's removing his hand of divine intervention and basically letting everything simply return to its natural order of things. So God's wrath was, was seen in God's removal of himself. He, he removed his, his wall of protection that he provided for his people, and then the natural order of sin in a fallen world ran its course. Now there's one other time in Exodus when, when God gets angry, and, and this time it's at his people. He is angry at his, his covenant people because they have made a golden calf a, a dumb idol that is supposed to represent a holy God. And this time his anger, therefore, is at his own people because they have betrayed him. The language is, is that of a, of a spouse who has been betrayed by infidelity. And God says to Moses in his anger in Exodus 32 and verse 10, Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. He's talking about his own people. For I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. So God just, he's like going, I just want to start over. I just want a new family, one that will love me, right? I'm going to wipe out everyone but you, Moses, and then we'll just start fresh from there. But Moses intercedes for the people. He intercedes for the people. He, he becomes their advocate, their mediator. 
at one point, he even offers himself in their place as their substitute. And so God withholds his plan of destruction. Now, taken together, here, here's what we can summarize about the anger of God. First, God is slow. He is slow to anger. In fact, he gives us uh, this self-revelation in Exodus, the same book, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and a gracious God. He is slow to anger. He is slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Steadfast love is what we, we continually refrain in Psalm 136. So he is slow to anger. Second thing we learn is that his anger is always, always, without exception, it is always just. All sin is treason against God. Not many people these days take sin all that seriously. I mean, it's just something that we almost flaunt these days. But, but to God, sin is worthy of death. The thing that we take lightly, God takes to the point of going, that deserves death. There's no other sentence against it that would be just. That's how holy God is. There is no parole. There, there is no lesser sentence. There's no plea bargain. There's only one verdict, and that's guilty, and there is only one sentence, and that's death. There are no exceptions. That's how serious God takes our sin. Our sin will be punished by death, either ours or that of Christ. Third, his, his anger is averted by a substitute. If there is no substitute, then sin runs its consequential course. So think about this. Think of what we learn here in Exodus about God's anger, about what makes God angry. Uh, God gets angry when he's not trusted. He's angry by a lack of faith. We see that in Moses. He doubted uh, five times. He even had miraculous evidence. He says, yeah, not me. Second, God gets angry when his children are threatened or attacked. Right? It's like a mama bear when Egypt came after his sons and daughters. Third, God gets angry when his own people betray him. Uh, that would make sense. Like, like one gets angry at the unfaithfulness of a, sp a spouse. Right? So, so God, uh, we need to understand God's anger because I think it is, is so misunderstood. So many people see God as just always flying off the handle, like he's just a hothead, like he's mad all the time, right? God is slow to anger. His anger is just, and his anger can be substituted for or satisfied. God is not always angry. He's not. It took him 50-something chapters and a lot of bad stuff going down before he finally gets angry. He's not the God who's carrying lightning bolts in his hand. He's looking for someone. Oh, there's one. 
That's not who God is. His, his anger is slow. His anger is justified. His anger is expressed by his removing himself from us and allowing the natural consequences of our decisions to unfold. Now, this pattern of God's anger is consistent throughout all the scriptures. And so when we read in the book of Habakkuk, what we discover is the same realities. Instead of, of God's anger against his people and then Egypt, we see the same thing played out, but this time it is with God and his people and Babylon. And so we find the same God at work because God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. So for the past couple of weeks, this is what we've been looking at. We've looked at a conversation between Habakkuk, uh, the prophet, and God. And Habakkuk, as, as you'll recall, has been frustrated that, not, that God is not doing anything or doesn't appear to be doing anything about the waywardness of the people of Judah. And so finally God responds to Habakkuk's complaint and he says, oh, okay, you want me to do something? I'm going to do something. I am going to raise up the Babylonians to conquer my people and to take them into exile. That's what I'm going to do. And so Habakkuk responds to that by saying, well, <laughs> what about the Babylonians? How are they getting off on this? Right? Are they just going to get away with that? Are they going to get away with, with evil? They're an evil people. And, and they're going to bring evil against your people. So how can you, a holy God with pure eyes, look upon all that? How can you look upon their, their wickedness and their arrogance? So Habakkuk's real struggle is, is with God's slowness to get angry. He wants God to be as angry as he is at the exact same people that he's angry with. And he wants to basically God to act the way he would act if he were God, which he isn't. God is patient and it frustrates Habakkuk and I think it frustrates a lot of people today I think it frustrates a lot of Christians today the way we we seem to flaunt our anger it's like why God why are you not angry at the same people at the same level that we're angry because it just seems to just be freedom nothing seems to happen to people so maybe we can relate to Habakkuk here. But God is patient because God's main priority is not to get even with his enemies, but to see them turn to him. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we read that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so Habakkuk's frustrated at God's 
slowness when, when really he should be quite thankful for it. Now, like I said before, just because God is slow to anger does not mean that he doesn't get angry. And so in Habakkuk chapter 2, God gives five woes. Woe concerning the people of Babylon, to the Babylonians. Yes, yes, they will face judgment. Now one thing you need to understand about a woe, we don't use that language today because we would be weird, right? Woe is you. Now woe isn't, but in the, in the scriptures, woe is, is a declaration, a promise, if you will, that something bad's about to happen as a result of sin. You remember Jesus gave seven woes against the Pharisees. A woe in the Bible is the opposite of a blessing. Like you see uh, the, 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 in the Beatitudes. Blessed are, and you have nine of those. So God's pattern of anger is, is apparent here in the text. He's, he's angry at his people. He's angry at his people because they don't trust him and they have turned from him. And at the same time, he is angry at Babylon because they're going to pursue and attack his people. Same thing we see in Exodus. It rings absolutely parallel to that story. So God's anger at his people is going to result in their exile. And God's anger at Babylon is going to result in their, their destruction. Because they're not his people. So God's anger at his people results in basically them being disciplined. Uh, refined, restored. While God's anger towards Babylon is going to result in their complete and final destruction. Now, before we get into these five woes, there's a theological issue that maybe you have thought of considered to this point. If not, I, let me throw it out there for you because it's quite a doozy. And that is this. Didn't God say that he was going to raise up the Babylonians to punish his people? Yes, he did. He did. So how can they, he turn around and punish the Babylonians, for what he raised them up to do? Well, that's a good question. Well, the, the fact is that basically we see the same thing uh, in Romans chapter 9. Once again, that's in reference to the Exodus. So there, Paul talks about God raising up Pharaoh... It's the same language that he raised up Pharaoh to train, to discipline his people through suffering. Check this out. Romans 9, 16 through 21. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up, there's the language, for this very purpose that I might display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then, why does God still blame us? This is basically the question I just asked. 
For who is able to resist his will? Here's God's answer, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? That's God's way of saying, who are you to question me? Well, here's the thing. is just because God raised up the Babylonians and God raised up Pharaoh basically to play the part of the villain in his story that, that does not make them any less responsible for their actions. Now, like we said, God is always just, always just in his anger and in his judgments. For example, we read in Exodus that Pharaoh, we're, we're told that Pharaoh had hardened his heart. Guess how many times? Five the same amount of times uh, as Moses, right? He, he hardened his heart five different times against God. And then the language changed five times. He hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then on the sixth time, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then it says that five times. Five times. So basically, you know, it, it's kind of like this. It's like Pharaoh stuck this sign in the ground and said, I reject the God of Moses. And so God does something miraculous through Moses. And he gives, he gives Pharaoh five opportunities. In fact, he, he shows him five different miracles to change his mind, to see and believe. And each time... Pharaoh hardens his heart against God. It's like he, he sticks a sign in the ground. Moses does a miracle with the power of God. Moses said, I'll be right back. And he comes back and he puts a bigger sign in the ground. He says, no, I still reject your God. Until finally he's got this giant sign in the ground. And then God finally says, fine. And he cements that sign in the ground. And he hardens Pharaoh's heart. And he seals his unbelief and his fate. That's what you find in the scripture. So the way God judges is to hand people over to the outcome of their decisions. And in time, they are hardened beyond repentance. And here in Habakkuk chapter 2, we find the, the ways of the Babylonians who have also stuck five signs in the ground. Five signs in the rejection of the one true God. Those five signs of rejection are, are met by five woes that God places upon them. Consider these five woes. Uh, the first one I call the woe of oppression. Verse 6. Woe to him who he heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. 
So the, basically, the Babylonians have been guilty of crimes against humanity. They, they pillage, they take what's not theirs, they lay claim to, to lives and possessions of other people. It says that they have loaded themselves with pledges. Let me tell you what that means. Pledges are, are, are debts. And so they have unjustly made people that they're already oppressing dependent upon them. Here's what they have done. They take all the resources that people need to survive from them and then they give out these loans, right, so that people, because they're desperate, they have no other way to gain the things that they have to have. So they're given loans, and then they are, are, are charged astronomical interest rates. And then they come and they demand payment, which people obviously can't pay back. And then they go, well, since you can't pay us back, you now are our slave. People are literally enslaved to their debts, if you will. In fact, uh, this, this is a, a, a systemic evil. This is an evil and unjust society that they are promoting. In fact, Babylon would become a metaphor throughout all of Scripture for all unjust systems of power and authority that keeps people down in order to raise up the rich and the powerful. It's all over the scriptures. Genesis to Revelation. But in time, it says that God says, your evil, your evil ways is going to come back to haunt you. So the pattern is this. He pronounces what they have done and then the woe. Verse 7 and 8. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will those awake who will make you tremble? Uh, then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. In other words, God's saying what goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. What they did to the Israelites is going to happen to them, and it actually did happen to them, and their oppressors were the Assyrians. Same thing. They became the ones... The oppressor became the oppressed. Now, in contrast to that, consider the ways of God. The ways of God in Jesus Christ is to set people free from their debts. That's what he does, right? The Bible speaks of our sin as a, as a heavy debt that we can never repay. And God sends Jesus to pay our debts for us. Through the cost of his precious blood. So Jesus is the, the anti-Babylonian, if you will. Consider the second pride, or woe. I, I call this the woe of pride. The woe of pride, verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house and sets his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. Well, this, this woe is, is very similar to the first in that God's anger is kindled against injustice. Through their unjust systems of oppressing others, the Babylonians have built their fortune, and specifically their, their really nice houses, on the backs of people they have oppressed. They, they have 
sized up the people of God and said, you, you people are inferior to us. We will own you. We will enslave you. And so a people uh, to be used, they saw the, the, the people of God as a people to be used and to extort rather than a people to, to rather than brothers and sisters to, to love and to serve and to learn from. And so the picture here is of the Babylonians. They're, they're living the high life, right? They're comfortable. They're safe. They're living in their big houses up high above everybody else. And below them is, is, is the others. This is the same Babylonian spirit that, that marks slavery and, and racism today. But we know that pride comes before the fall, and so that's expressed in verses 10 and 11. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, but the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from your woodwork respond. So instead, he's saying, instead of being honored and thought well of, the Babylonians, uh, you know, they're like going, hey, aren't we impress impressive in our, in our big house? We got this big house, lots of bedrooms. It's beautiful, isn't it? Aren't you impressed? And God says, you know what? The walls of that house are going to cry out against you. Right? And, and, and you're not going to be esteemed by people. You're going to be shamed. People are not going to be envious of you. People are going to be disgusted by you. How different are the ways of Jesus? Even though he was was God enfleshed. He did not grasp at power, a power that he had every right to claim, but instead he walked the path of a servant all the way to the cross. Therefore God gave him the name that is above every name. You see the difference? While the Babylonians made themselves high, they would be brought low. Jesus made himself low and was lifted up on high. Look at the third woe. I call this the woe of violence. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Man, the Babylonians, they were violent. They were ruthless. They built their cities by bloodshed. They made iniquity their foundation. What a terrible place that must have been to live. Such a city. Can you imagine creating a community based on sin and bloodshed as your foundation? Right? That's exactly what the spirit of Babylon does. It, it, it creates a community where all the citizens of that community are, are, are basically controlled through fear. It creates a community based on fear and on shame and on, on the threat of punishment. And I, I think about that, and I think, man, how many communities today are built on a, a common fear? You know, fear seems to be kind of just the, the M.O. of people today. Listen to politicians feed fear to the constituents. Better vote for me, or this is going to happen. Even churches, even churches, uh, many churches operate based on fear instead of freedom. They gather and they huddle out of fear for the world. Or, or some create fear within themselves. 
fear of not fitting in, right? This is the way we dress. This is the way we act. This is the thing that we do. And if you don't fit into our system, then, you know. So it's a fear of appearing not to beat some spiritual bar that has been set up, not by God, but by the people. That's the spirit of Babylon. And what is behind all of that fear? And what is behind all that violence is it's an attempt to control other people. To, to say that our tribe is better than your tribe. And what is the outcome of such violence? Well, he tells us, verse 13, 14, Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that the people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Ah. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I love that. You know, it's saying that the nations are at war trying to seek their own glory that belongs to God alone. Who in the end will cover the earth with his glory as the waters cover the sea. So all these nations, from, you go back from, from the Babylonians, right? The Babylonians are going to conquer the Israelites, and then the Assyrians are going to conquer uh, the Babylonians, and then the Greeks are going to come, and they're going to conquer the Assyrians, and then the Romans are going to come, and they're going to conquer the Greeks, and on and on it goes. Where you got Russia trying to conquer Ukraine, perhaps China and Taiwan, it just goes on and on and on. And God's like, going, what are you doing? Don't you know that you can never raise yourself up to be a glorious nation because it all belongs to me? Uh, the, the fourth woe I call the woe of the flesh. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order that you may gaze at their nakedness. The Babylonians were, were a violent and godless people. They were driven by drunkenness and lust. And they loved to exploit others for their own pleasure. God, however, is going to expose them in their shame. And what is a rather embarrassing consequence? God says this. In verse 16, uh, you, you, is that what you want to do? You will have your shame instead of glory. Drink, drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around you. The cup of the Lord's right hand is a sig signal for his wrath. And utter shame will come upon your glory. Well, it doesn't take a ton of imagination to picture that scene, does it? And they, here they are, they're staggering drunk with their pants around their ankles. Shame. And they're showing themselves as those who are not part of the covenant of God's people. God is saying, these aren't my people. These aren't my people. So they will not inherit my glory. Finally, there is the, the woe of idolatry in verse 19. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, and to a silent stone arise. Right? Everyone in the world, everyone that you will ever meet is a worshiper. There is not an exception to that. You will never meet a non-worshiper, ever. The question is who or what is their God? Idolatry is worshiping any other God other than the one true God. So, so uh, we, 
we, people like idolatry. We may not call it that, but, but people like idolatry. You know why? Because it, it creates a, a deity in our own image which we can control. Idols are, are the gods we make in our own image. But, but such idols are powerless to save us. Verse 18 calls idols a, a teacher of lies. It promises things that it can never deliver on. It's just a dumb idol. It's just a representation of ourselves. And you can, you can, you can demand a silent stone to arise, but it's just a stone. <laughs> Today, our, our, our idols are, are money and sports and sex and careers, and the list is just endless, right? But none of those things, they're just a reflection of ourselves but none of them can save us. There is only one who has arisen. There is only one who has rose up. Only one who has conquered sin and death, who is worthy of our worship. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. So, man, I look at all those woes, all the sins of Babylon... And I, and I go, well, okay, oppression, uh, pride, uh, hurting other people, driven by the flesh, idolatry. And I go, man, these are the things that cause God's nostrils to flare. These are the characteristics of every empire that has ever established, been established in this world, in this fallen world. Every single empire has those traits. And I go, man, it's so easy to shake our heads at the corporate sin of the nations. We do it all the time. Just read social media. But I can't help but think, as I read that list, that there's Babylon walls within me. That the Babylonian spirit is within each of us. And, and that the Babylonian spirit is always at war in my heart, trying to drag me into captivity constantly. And I know that God in his anger, because he is just, he will allow that sin to run its course and have me dragged off into exile, taken captive by my own sin, unless I repent. But what is repentance? Repentance, does it mean, okay, okay, I gotta stop doing this, I gotta stop sinning, I gotta get my act together. I've tried that. It does not work. No, repentance is to turn from our sin and its destruction and run as fast as we can into the loving arms of Jesus. That's repentance. So God has spoken to Habakkuk. He has revealed 
his, his anger and his justice and his plan towards Babylon. Habakkuk has been free to speak his mind, which he has done so, right? And to ask his questions. And, and God has graciously answered him. And so now God, because he's answered him, it may not be the answers he was hoping for, but he's answered him. What is left for the prophet to say? How is he going to respond? He's going to say nothing. Neither he nor anyone in all the earth can argue against God's holy and sovereign decrees. Verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God's anger is slow. It is always just. It is always good. But when we're confronted with it, we are left to be speechless. We have no defense in light of his holiness. We offer no excuses to the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. He says, keep silent. And when we come before him, that, that's basically, we can't go, all right, well, here's what was up, God. You see, so-and-so had the hard life, and, and this, this person, my parents, and then, you know, this person did this, and, and I just kind of reacted to all that, and, well, I kind of took a wayward spin, and I, you understand, right? No. We have sinned against God and God only, and he says, silent. But, but, the command to keep silent also, in the Hebrew text, means to be quieted. To be quieted. In other words, uh, the text says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Allow yourself to be silenced, to be quieted, to be still. Is what the word means. It, it, it's, it's active and passive at the same exact time. Shut up. Stop questioning my goodness. Stop running on the exhausting treadmill that is religion, trying to justify yourself, and allow yourself to be quieted. How? Look at Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Here's the word. He will quiet you by his love. Isn't that awesome? He will exult over you with loud singing. You be quiet. You just rest and let me sing over you. Isn't that beautiful? God invites us in the passage to stop churning, to stop needing to have all the answers, to, to stop trying to figure out divine mystery, and to simply be quieted by his love. 
He invites us all, the world, he invites the whole world into a place of peace and silence and joy. And every time, every time we start to doubt if God is just, he says, just keep silent and look at Jesus crucified. Do you think I'm just? And every time we begin to doubt whether or not God is loving, he says, just, just keep silent and look at the cross. And there we're quieted by his love. Our answers are satisfied, are they not? Every time we question if God is mad at us, are you angry with me, Lord? Do you have it out for me? Because it seems that way. Are you punishing me because of some lack of goodness and holiness in me? He says, stand there and be quiet. And look to Jesus on the cross. It is, it is there at the cross that our doubts are resolved and our fears are comforted. At the cross, right? We, we have a mediator. We have an advocate. We have a substitute. We have an intercessor who has taken our place and who has borne the anger of God on himself at the cross. When you stare at the cross, you see one who is suffering the wrath of God on your behalf. In Christ, all of the woes and all of the curses against us have been removed and placed on him. Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, because of that, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And let that, let that be the banner that flies over your life. God's anger has been removed from you. God is not mad at you. God's anger has been removed from his people. Now, he may still discipline us, but the Bible says he does so because he loves us. And we can still grieve him, but his anger has been removed from us. And the way that we know that for certain is because it was placed on Jesus, and that was enough. That was sufficient. So if you wonder if God's still mad at you, look at the cross. Do you think that God poured out his wrath on Jesus and said, all right, but I'm still a little bit angry, so I'm going to do this to you. As though that weren't sufficient? No, that's, that's, that's horrible. Right? So, so if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear me, hear me loud and clear. God is not mad at you. Every time you struggle to believe that, because we all do, we all do, go to the cross. Go to the cross. See Jesus bearing your sin. See him absorbing God's anger. And just be silent. That's all that's left for us to do. To be silent. To be in awe. To be healed. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you are a God who has emotion. You're not the God of the philosophers, the unmoved mover, the unfeeling, unemotional robot. 
in the sky. Uh, you're a God who, who has anger against sin. You're, you're a God who, whose wrath is kindled like any husband who's, whose wife cheats on him. It, it, your, your, your anger is, is always just, and yet you're so patient with us. You're so patient. And even in your anger, your love is just as radical and just as profound. And at the cross, we see those, the, the collision between your, your wrath and your holiness and your justice and your love and your mercy and your grace, and they come all on Christ. He bore it all. He put a wall between your wrath that separates us from that. Now we live in just perfect, perfect place of your love. Father, it's sometimes hard to believe that because uh, of the way the world is and because of the way of, of our hearts and because the, 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 the ruins of Babylon are still within us. Captivity is, is still tugging at us. But Father, we have been set free from that. We have been removed from exile. And so I pray, Father, help us to believe it with everything that's in our soul. Help us, Father, to live it, to live out our beliefs, and to just be free. Just be freed up. What a joy. Father, there's anybody here today who's, who's never had that, that moment of fully trusting in you and allowing you to take their sins from them and receive your holiness back in its place. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that they would just cry out during this time of invitation, say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me for my sins. God, heal me. God, I just come and I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and be healed. Come, Lord Jesus, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.